This has come to the table. Bible studies from the New Testament Christian Church of Cheyenne. These studies are presented every Tuesday night at 7 p.m. at our church at 3800 East Pershing Boulevard in Cheyenne, Wyoming. If you'd like to contribute to these studies, you can make a donation at www.myntcc.org backslash Cheyenne WY dash giving. Proverbs chapter 9. Now we tried. We really did. But we did get all the way through chapter 8. We did not get to chapter 9. So we're going to jump right into chapter 9. And let's start right at the beginning. Verse 1. Wisdom hath builded her house. She hath hewn out her seven pillars. She hath killed her beasts. She hath mingled her wine. She hath also furnished her table. She hath sent forth her maidens. She crieth upon the high places of the city. Whoso is simple, let him turn in hither. As for him that wanteth understanding, she saith to him, Come, eat of my bread, and drink of the wine which I have mingled. Let's stop right there, because this paints a picture of the type of character that wisdom represents. And again, we we talked about this last week, and in, in all of the weeks that we've been teaching out of the Proverbs, we've been sharing how that wisdom is represented in this book as a as a diligent and industrious woman. That's how she's portrayed. That's how she's personified. We understand wisdom is not a real person, okay? The Bible's not trying to make her out to be an actual person. The Bible is presenting wisdom in this figure, in this style, so that we might, we might have a better understanding of what that character is like. And so in the opening chapter, in the opening verses of this chapter, we see wisdom represented as an industrious and not just a busy, but an industrious and a diligent woman. It says, wisdom hath builded her house. She hath hewn out her seven pillars. Well, let's look at some of this language here because it's not all just poetry. I understand that the Proverbs are grouped in with books of wisdom. Some people group them in with, uh, with uh, the poetical books, but it isn't just poetical language here. Let's look at what it's saying. Wisdom hath built her house. She hath hewn out her seven pillars. Well, what's a pillar? A pillar is something that holds something else up. It bears a load. We have like eight of them in here, sort of, that hold that are these trusses we presume are anchored to. These are load-bearing trusses that are anchored to these pillars on the sides of our chapel here that help bear the weight of the ceiling. A pillar is something that bears a heavy load, a burden. You could call it a responsibility and holds it up keeps it from crashing to the ground and collapsing. So she hath hewn out her seven pillars. She hath killed her beasts. She hath mingled her wine. Why did he choose this kind of language? She hath killed her beasts. Does that just mean that she's out there murdering animals? She's running into strangers' pastures and killing their cows? No. It means that she she has slaughtered those animals for food for the people she's about to feed. In other words, she's providing food for her own house. That's what wisdom does. And then in the very next verse, she hath mingled her wine. Well, what does that mean? Well, it means that she's a mixologist. She's just up there flipping bottles around and mixing drinks and and, uh, just living it up and getting it set up for everybody that's coming over to her place for a party. No. When... When their wine got old enough that it started to ferment, 
which would make it intoxicating, right? Well, one of the ways that you could one of the ways that you could counter that was by mingling newer wine with that or even water with it. You could basically dilute it so that it was no longer intoxicating or so that you would have to drink superhuman amounts of the stuff to even get a buzz. That's this speaks of her this speaks it says something concerning her character. So she's killed her beast to provide food for those that will be at her house. She hath mingled her wine because she's not going to serve something to her guests that is going to make them act crazy, stupid, foolish, or anything else. Wisdom doesn't throw block parties where people are getting drunk and acting the fool. Okay? The wine that wisdom serves will not get you drunk. It will simply satisfy your soul. There's a big difference there. Because you ever wondered about that? If you've ever had alcohol in the past, maybe the first time that you ever tried it, and it first hit, the, it first hit your tongue, and it was like, you looked at it like, why on earth would anybody ever drink this stuff? It tastes like rocket fuel or kerosene or something like that. I mean, a lot of that stuff, especially hard liquor, tastes like a horror show. I mean, it's absolutely, it's disgusting. Because people aren't drinking that sort of thing to be to satisfy a thirst. They drink that sort of thing because there's an effect that they're trying to get off of it. They're trying to get a buzz. They're trying to get drunk. They're trying to forget their woes. They're trying to drown their sorrows in something that is both temporary and artificial. Wisdom doesn't have anything to do with that stuff. The satisfaction that wisdom brings to the life of a person is a lasting satisfaction. In other words... Have you ever done something really smart and you knew it was smart and it played out perfectly and it, it, it turned out well and good and everything worked out great and then you were very satisfied with that because it, it was an exercise in wisdom and it worked out just fine and you benefited and perhaps other people benefited as well. Well, there's a satisfaction in that. And so, yes, we're using it as a metaphor here in Proverbs 9. Uh, verses 1 and 2. We're using it as a metaphor, but there's a reason why Solomon chose this language where he said that, that she hath killed her beast, she hath mingled her wine. She's mingled her wine so it's not intoxicating and so that it's actually going to satisfy a thirsty soul, not someone who's seeking to be drunk and artificially um, pacified. That's the word that we're looking for. Let's move on. She hath also furnished her table. So it continues in this, this image of a diligent and an industrious woman. She hath furnished her table. Verse 3 goes on. She hath sent forth her maidens, those, those that work for her and labor for her. She has dispatched them. She has sent them forth. She crieth upon the highest places of the city. Whoso is simple, let him turn in hither. As for him that wanteth understanding, she saith to him, Come, Eat of my bread and drink of the wine which I have mingled. What is she doing? What is this person that's this wisdom personified? What is she engaged in? Sitting at home with her feet up, satisfied that she's wise? No. She's engaged in reaching out to the foolish and to the ignorant and the unlearned She's engaged in reaching out to people that have need of her. She's reaching out to them and saying, come over to where I live and sit down at my table 
and eat of my bread and drink of my wine that's not going to make you stupid and foolish and, and unreasonable and irrational, but is going to satisfy your actual thirst. Come partake freely of what I have for you. That's what he's saying here. That's what he's saying here. That's what wisdom is engaged in. Have you ever had, have you ever received any wonderful thing at all in your life? Whether it was spiritual or physical. Well, let's just take the low-hanging fruit here. When you got saved, when you first believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, what is one of the first things that you wanted to do with that? You wanted to share it. And it awakened inside you. It awakened in your own heart and in your mind. Even, yes, even if you were an introvert. Oh yeah, I like going there. I like talking about that because I grew up an introvert. It's just my natural personality. You don't think it because I talk so much and just the ministry has dragged me over into something much more akin to extroversion. But that's because, you know, God is the potter. We're the clay. He makes us into what He wants us to be. Amen? Even if it requires a change in personality. If it's a change that He wants. You know, not a change that everybody else wants. Everybody's always trying to change your personality anyway, aren't they? I remember when I first prayed for salvation as a teenager in Colorado Springs. I was still very much an introverted person, but I wanted to tell people. I wanted to tell people about Jesus. I didn't know how to. I didn't know how to articulate it. I didn't have half a clue, any way to approach someone about it. And so, well, what do you do then? Well, you just talk to the people that you know. And sure, sometimes it'll alienate them. Well, they'll alienate you more often than not. They might alienate you and they're not your friend anymore, but I wanted them to know. Wisdom is represented here as wanting people to have what she had. She wanted, she, she, so to speak, wanted to share this. And so out there in the highest places of the city, whoso is simple, let him turn in hither. As for him that wanteth understanding, she saith to him, come eat of my bread, drink of the wine which I have mingled. And then he goes on in verse six, or she, if you will, Solomon writing as wisdom saying, Forsake the foolish. So this is still part of this is still part of verses four and five. This is wisdom speaking. Forsake the foolish and live, and go in the way of understanding. Well, there's instruction there. There's a point where you have to let people go. It doesn't mean that you hate them. It doesn't mean that you don't ever want to talk to them again. It doesn't mean that you've necessarily cut them off. It doesn't mean any of that. It means that there's a point in which you have to let the foolish go on in their foolish way if they will not receive wisdom, if they will not value divine things. In the afternoon Bible study today over in uh, Matthew chapter 7, it's uh, not the first paragraph, it's the second paragraph. I forget the verse number, but the first teaching on judge, not lest you be judged. Make sure that your judgment is without hypocrisy. Right after that, he shares this teaching. Our Lord Jesus shares this teaching Give not that which is holy unto the dogs or unto dogs. Okay, And he says, don't cast your pearls before swine. It's obviously not talking about real pearls. If you have grandmother's pearls or whatever, or your own pearls, if you have such things and, and you want to go out into the pig pen and toss them in front of pigs, it's not a sin. It just might look kind of silly and people will think you're weird. It's a lesson on don't take that which is of a spiritual divine nature don't take that which has spiritual worth and cast it before those people who have absolutely no interest in it will not receive it and do not value it so that's the lesson there but it ties in to what 
Solomon is saying here in Proverbs chapter 9, forsake the foolish and live. There's a point where after trying to reason with someone or after trying to witness to someone or asking, after trying to, to talk to someone about God or try to get them to see the light of the gospel and they just won't do it, there's a point where you just have to let them go. You just have to let them go in the way that they're going to go instead of going with them. Because that's something about when, when two people walk together, okay, and keep close company with one another, one of them is going to influence the other. Either one the other or the other one the other one. However, whichever one wins out, one of them is going to influence the other. And if we walk with fools, I'm very careful how I say this because I'm not trying to sound like a snob. Certainly I am not one. Any wisdom in me is a gift of God. Any wisdom in any of us is the gift of God, okay? But if we walk with fools, foolish people, okay? If we walk with them long enough, their foolishness will influence us for the worse. There's that old saying. I don't know how long it's been around. It's at least from some... I assume it's from the Old West, okay? I don't know. If you run with horse thieves, you're going to become a horse thief. Boy, that's appropriate for Cheyenne, isn't it? cattle rustlers or whatever. If you run with horse thieves, you're eventually going to become a horse thief because the people that you keep company with the most are the ones who will influence you. So, well, I'm trying to influence them. Okay, well, that's good. But there's a point where you recognize if you're not influencing them, it's time to part ways. And the Bible even asks that question in another place. I believe it's among the prophets where he asks the question, can two walk together except they be agreed? There's a point where a breaking away or a division has to happen. And she's saying that here. She, wisdom, is saying that here. Forsake the foolish and live. Don't keep company with the foolish. I'm not saying that you write off everybody that disagrees with you about anything at all under the sun, that you write them off as a fool and break company with them. And then you'll never have anyone close to you, okay? And there are disagreements that people can have. We're talking about forsaking fools. And what have we said about fools? That a fool is defined by the fact that they never learn. That it, that it doesn't matter what they're taught or even, or even what they experience in life. They don't learn and that's what makes them a fool. And that's what makes them dangerous in that respect. Because in their foolishness, they will influence other people that are impressionable and will be influenced by that. And so wisdom says, forsake the foolish and live. And go in the way of understanding. Now let's move on here. Verse 7, he says, He that reproveth a scorner getteth to himself shame. And he that rebuketh a wicked man getteth to himself a blot. Reprove not a scorner, lest he hate thee. Rebuke a wise man, and he will love thee. Give instruction to a wise man, and he will be yet wiser. Teach a just man, and he will increase in learning. Let's stop there. These, these seem like loosely connected, even a little bit disjointed, but they do all connect with one another. Verse 7, he that reproves a scorner getteth to himself shame. Well, what's a scorner? Well, let's look that up. I looked it up the other day. I need to look it up again. It's one of those words you know what they mean, but you have difficulty articulating their definition. Scorner. Well, what's a good example of a scorner? 
listen to anybody with strong, strong political opinions going off on someone who disagrees with them. That's a scorner. Listen to someone who is highly opinionated about anything when, and it's not wrong to be opinionated. It just means that you have opinions about a lot of things. Nothing wrong with that. But when you get, uh, when you get contemptuous and combative with that kind of opinionation and everybody's stupid but you. You know what I'm talking about? Have you ever been that type of person? Hopefully not. It's not a good way to be at all. It's a very immature way to be. Scorn speaks of open dislike or, or, and disrespect or mockery often mixed with indignation. Contempt, an expression of contempt or derision. So there, there's a spirit behind scorning that is very devilish and very carnal in nature. When someone is just breathing out horrific contempt and hatred for something or someone, that's a scorner engaged in scorning. Okay, So he says, He that reproves a scorner getteth to himself shame, and he that rebuketh a wicked man getteth himself a blot. Well, what's that mean? I thought we were supposed to reprove people that were doing things wrong and rebuke wicked people and all of that. But the Bible here is telling us that if you do that, you get to yourself shame and you earn yourself a blot, like egg in your face or something like that. Well, what's he mean by that? It means that you're wasting your time. It's the same theme as pearls before swine. It's the same thing as casting that which is holy unto dogs, which speaks of common. You take something that's holy and you give it to something that's common that doesn't understand or appreciate its value. It speaks of the same thing. You reprove or yeah, you reprove a scorner, someone that's venting out all of this contempt and hatred. They're just going to turn on you and scorn you. And it's not going to get through to them because it's like a, it's like a drunkard under the influence of all of this drink. They are not receptive to your counsel or your efforts to correct them. Their minds, their brains and their mouths are stuck, like any cult member, are stuck on transmit. And they are incapable of receiving. You know what I mean? Those old walkie-talkies, you had to push the button on the side to actually speak into it. And then you forget to take your thumb off of it and you're like, hello, 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 is anybody there? And they're like, take your thumb off the button. And then you have to take your thumb. And then... See, people like this have their, their, their thumbs permanently stuck on that button because they're only interested in talking. I know that's rich coming from the preacher who talks so much, okay? But I also know how to listen. I really do. These folks don't. And that's why wisdom says, don't bother reproving a scorner. It's a waste of your effort and of your time because they will not receive it. And he that rebuketh a wicked man getteth himself a blot. It all speaks of the same thing. Verse 8, he goes on and says, reprove not a scorner. In other words, don't reprove a scorner, lest he hate thee. Well, what's the context for that? Well, that's filled in right in the second half of that sentence. Rebuke a wise man, and he will love thee. So that's the difference. The scorner doesn't value wisdom. The scorner does not value the Word of God. That guy that I chased down, we were, out, we were out doing some outreach that Saturday. It was quite a few weeks ago. And we were parked alongside of the road. And I saw a guy go walk past the car. We were about to get out to go knock on some doors, meet some people, invite them to the house of God. It's a good thing to do. And this guy walks past the car. And I got this conviction that I ought to just reach out to him. And I'm not necessarily saying that it was from God. It may have been. It may not have been. It might have just been opportunistic. I don't know. But he walked past the car and... 
Got quite a few steps down the road before I got out of the car. And I had to hustle after him to catch up, but I finally did. And I started to invite him. And as soon as words even started coming out of my mouth, the man turned on me like a dog. I'm not saying he was a dog. I'm saying he turned on me like a dog. And he just let loose with this short, loud, bitter report. I'm not going to say what he said. But it was pretty rude. Turned around and kept on walking. So well, what did you do? Did you chase after him? Did you say, no, wait, now I have the word of the Lord for you. You need to listen. No. Pearls before swine. Holy things given unto dogs. Rebuking a scorner. Reproving a wicked man. They, if they don't value it, then you're just wasting your effort. I asked this question earlier this afternoon. There's 7 billion people in the world. Why would we spend all of our time trying to get through to one human being who does not want it when there are 6.9 billion other human beings who do? You know what I'm saying? So you have to learn and you have to gauge and you have to judge the situation that you're in. And it takes a measure of discernment and, and it takes thought and all of that. And so he's saying... Don't reprove a scorner lest he hate thee because he doesn't value your wisdom. He doesn't value your input, but a wise man does. And that's what he's telling us here in verse eight. Rebuke a wise man and he will love you. He will love thee. A wise man will love you. He may not like the rebuke, but he will recognize. And this is where the fool fails. Okay. And the wise man succeeds. The wise man will recognize and will see through he will, he will understand your motive for reproof or rebuke or correction. And he'll understand you're not doing it to offend him or to make him feel bad or to make him feel guilty. You're doing it to help him straighten something out in his life. The wise man understands that and appreciates it, even if he doesn't like the rebuke. And there's lots of different ways to rebuke. You know, there's the there's the. Uh, or what does Reverend DeRyder call it? The blade hand type rebuke. You know, there's that kind of, you know, hellfire and brimstone blast them, get right or go to hell, that sort of thing. I mean, really, and it's that, that's that kind of, there's that kind of reproof and it's harsh and it hurts and I'm not a big fan of it myself. But there are some people that will only understand that kind of language and it'll get through to them. And then, as the Bible says, some saved by fear, pulling them out of the fire. So there's a time and a place for that. Perhaps, yes. But there are other types of reproofs and rebukes that are nowhere near so harsh. It can be, in fact, very, very gentle. Either way, the wise man will love you for it. And he says in verse 9, Give instruction to a wise man, and he will be yet wiser. Teach a just man, and he will increase in learning. Now, verse 10, he says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the holy is understanding. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and the knowledge of the holy is understanding. So it might, see, might seem like a non sequitur verse in the midst of this paragraph, but it's not. It's all part of the same thought. He's reminding us. All of it begins with the fear of God and the reverence of God. We never, ever, ever get past that. It doesn't matter if you've been a Christian for 20, 30, 40 years or longer, all your life. It doesn't matter. God is still God and He is always God. And it's like your parents telling you, I don't care how big you get, I can still put you over my knee. Any of you have parents that have ever told you that when you were like in your 20s? It reminded you, mom is still mom. 
dad is still dad, and it doesn't matter how many taxes you pay, they still have authority, and they will still snatch a knot in your hide. It reminds us, God is always going to be God. We're never going to be His equal. And so, however long we live in Him, however long we live on the earth, however long we live for Him, we never rise to such a level that we are beyond His authority to correct us. That's not a bad thing. It's not something, it's not something to be resented. Because, again, rebu- rebuke a wise man and he'll love you. And so when the Lord reproves us, when the Lord rebukes us, reminds us either softly, gently, or sharply and harshly, it's for our good. And we have to remember that. The wise man will remember that. The scorner will not. And he will bitterly resent it. And he'll turn his back and walk off and, and, and just cut himself right out of your life. And so the fear of the Lord, we're reminded here in verse 10, is the beginning of wisdom. The knowledge of the holy is understanding. So I've got a PhD in physics. Wonderful. The knowledge of the holy is understanding and is worth more than these things. Not to say these other things are without value. We're not saying that. But it's the knowledge of the holy that gives us understanding. For by me, verse 11, for by me thy days shall be multiplied. This is wisdom speaking. For by me thy days shall be multiplied and the years of thy life shall be increased. If thou be wise, Thou shalt be wise for thyself, but if thou scornest, thou alone shalt bear it. What's he saying? Whether we're wise or whether we're foolish scorners, we will either reap the benefit or we will reap the consequences of it and we'll reap it for ourselves. And if we're part of a family or a community or something like that, others might end up reaping some of that with us because everything that happens to us and everything that we do affects everyone else that we know. No man is an island. No woman is an island. We are all interconnected one with another, one way or another. Verse 13, next paragraph. He says, a foolish woman is clamorous. What's that mean? Loud. Loud. She makes a racket about things. She's, um, she's not just highly opinionated, but she's very loud about it. She's that one in the neighborhood that will always give you a piece of her mind if you give her half the chance. And that's why she doesn't have any mind left. She's given all of her pieces away to everybody around her. Okay, A foolish woman is clamorous. She is simple and knoweth nothing. For she sitteth at the door of her house on a seat in the high places of the city to call passengers who go right on their ways. Whoso is simple, let him turn in hither. And as for him that wanteth understanding, she saith to him, stolen waters are sweet. And bread eaten in secret is pleasant. But he knoweth not that the dead are there and that her guests are in the depths of hell. Whoa, that's that's heavy duty stuff to end a study on. Okay, so let's go into this and let's pick it apart a little bit. Now, uh, how do we say this? To the feminist, this sounds like an indictment against all women. It's not. Not within 100 miles. He didn't say a woman is clamorous. He said a foolish woman is clamorous. Why is he even bringing this up? Well, we were just talking about wisdom at the beginning of this chapter and describing wisdom's character, wisdom personified as an an industrious and a diligent woman and doing all of these things that are good and going out 
into the going out into the places where people lack her and reaching out to them that they might benefit from wisdom. Well, guess what? Foolishness does the same thing. Wisdom and foolishness are both evangelical in nature. Big revelation. What does that mean? Wisdom wants people to be wise. Foolishness wants people to be foolish. They both love to spread their own character, good or bad. And so verse 13 through verse, eight, through verse 18, the end of this chapter, shows us a contrast to wisdom. Wisdom is shown here at the beginning of the chapter as having built her own house, hewn out the pillars that hold up the weight of the ceiling of it and the roof of it. She's killed her beasts, prepared food, mingled her wine so that it doesn't make drunk, so that it satisfies instead of intoxicates. She's furnished her table. She's been busy. She's been diligent. She's sent forth her maidens that work for her, that they may help her accomplish her work. She cries upon the highest places of the city. Whoso is simple, let him turn in hither. Same words. Foolishness is using the same words as wisdom. Do you see it happening here? Wisdom says, whoso is simple, turn in hither. And as for him that wanteth understanding, come eat of my bread, drink of the wine which I have mingled. Forsake the foolish and live and go in the way of understanding. But foolishness goes out there in the city too. Foolishness goes out there in the city too, calling, sitting in the high places and in the door of her own house here, verse 14 and verse 15, to call passengers who go right on their ways, whoso is simple, let him turn in hither. And as for him that wanteth understanding, she saith, stolen waters are sweet. Wisdom doesn't use that kind of tactic. Meaning what? Wisdom says, come to my house and eat of what I am going to give you freely and with, without even abrading you about it. That's if we attach this to what James says concerning wisdom over in the book of James, okay? But foolishness, foolishness doesn't offer something that's hers. Foolishness tempts. Foolishness lays something out in front of us and says, stolen waters are sweet and bread eaten in secret is pleasant. Did I mix that up? No. Stolen waters are sweet. And bread eaten in secret is pleasant. It's a poetic way of saying being bad feels good, doesn't it? Whoso is simple, whoso lacks understanding, come on over here, I got something for you. She probably stole it. That's why she was offering. Foolishness seeks to spread her own character. Whether you want to personify it as a man or a woman, it doesn't matter, okay? So it's not some sexist thing. The lesson is that Foolishness spreads where wisdom doesn't reach. So is there a lesson in that for us? There's a few lessons in that for us. Stolen waters are sweet. Let's finish this up. Stolen waters are sweet. Bread eaten in secret is pleasant. That's the tempting message of foolishness. But verse 18 reveals the end of that road. It's the same end has been described in previous chapters of the book of Proverbs. He knoweth not that the dead are there and that her guests are in the depths of hell. Foolishness ruins lives and causes such damage that some people never get over it, never can fix it, and some people bear the consequences of it for years and years. Foolishness has consequences. 
and where wisdom does not yet reach or where people abhor her. We, we covered this at the very end of chapter 8. He that sinneth against me, this is wisdom speaking, whoso findeth me findeth life and shall obtain favor of the Lord. But he that sinneth against me wrongeth his own soul and all they that hate me love death. So there's a price to despising and avoiding and rejecting wisdom. It comes with a very, very heavy price. When you reject wisdom and you reject godly counsel and you reject the word of God, all these things as they're, as they're presented to us for our betterment, for God's glory and for our betterment and edification, excuse me, when we reject these things, then we find ourselves in a state of mind where we make stupid decisions. You make dumb calls, bad decisions, do things half-baked, jacked up, and then when things break down or when things backfire or when we realize after the fact, oh my goodness, I should not have done that. We have to carry the pain of that decision sometimes. There's consequences to foolish decisions. So well, I'll just pray and Jesus will forgive me. It's not about that. Yes, God forgives when we truly repent of things. And yes, He can help us fix things, but sometimes you, you don't just fix something with a prayer. You, you run with foolish people and then you end up going and robbing a store with them. Sounds unlikely and it might elicit a laugh from us because we fancy ourselves a light years away from that kind of a life. But people have been led right out of the sheepfold of Almighty God into lives of criminality. If we reject wisdom, we got a long, hard, hard road ahead of us. So let us not. Let us, as we bring this first series of studies on the subject of wisdom out of the book of Proverbs, as we bring this first series to a close here with the close of chapter 9. Chapter 10 will open up another series when the Lord wills. Okay, But as we bring this first series to a close, let's review for just a moment in closing. Let us do as wisdom commands. Love her. Embrace her. We're using the same language that Solomon used here in the, in the book of Proverbs. Call her thy kinswoman. Call her thy sister. She abides with prudence. That's right out of chapter 8. Wisdom. I, wisdom, dwell with prudence. Okay? They go hand in hand. Let us embrace the wisdom of Almighty God that was with God in the beginning and even before the beginning, as he described in chapter 8. As one brought up with him, is actually the language that he uses. Let us pursue wisdom, value wisdom, esteem it as worth more than three times any paycheck you have ever gotten. It's worth that and far more. And nothing else is even to be compared with it. So what does that have to do with Jesus? Well, he says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So well, I don't have any wisdom. Fear God and that'll kick start it in your life. That'll get the ball rolling in the right direction in your life. Recognize who God is, His authority and His power and His leadership. And he'll turn your life, he'll take your life and turn it into something you never even thought was possible. I'm not making promises. I'm not, I'm not writing checks that I can't cash. It's not me cashing them anyway. It's God cashing. You know what I'm saying. He, has, he owns the cattle on a thousand hills. He has all the wealth of heaven. But it's here for us. And the best thing, here's two of the best things about wisdom, okay? 
I'm not saying that they're the only best things about wisdom. I'm saying two of the best things about wisdom are this. God gives it for free and doesn't even abrade you while He gives it. If you lack it, ask for it. God will give it one way or another. He'll give it to you in life experiences. He'll give it to you the easy way if you can, the hard way if you can't. He'll give it to you any way that you're willing to receive it. But when you're presented with it, don't despise it. Don't reject it. Don't fight against it. That road leads to the house of foolishness whose guests are in the depths of hell. Thank you for listening to Come to the Table, Bible studies from the New Testament Christian Church of Cheyenne. Included in these presentations are red-letter studies on the life and teachings of our Lord Jesus Christ, historical studies on the Old Testament, topical studies on biblical doctrines, and practical studies on Christian life. If you enjoyed this presentation, you can support our efforts by contributing at www.myntcc.org backslash Cheyenne WY giving.